This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 530th episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a trailblazing Native American actress whose breakout performance in Martin Scorsese's film Killers of the Flower Moon as an Osage woman named Molly Burkhart whose oil wealth made her a target of white men during what is known as the Reign of Terror, has made her a bona fide star. Indeed, she has already won the Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama Golden Globe Award and the Best Actress National Board of Review and New York Film Critics Circle Awards. She was nominated for the Best Actress Critics' Choice Award, and she is nominated for the Best Actress SAG Award and, in a first for an Indigenous American, the Best Actress Academy Award. Lily Gladstone. Over the course of a conversation at the Lermitage Beverly Hills Hotel, the 37-year-old and I discussed her path to a screen acting career and why she decided to pursue one despite being familiar with the way Native Americans have historically been treated by the business, why the opportunity to play a key role in Kelly Reichardt's 2016 indie film Certain Women proved to be both a blessing and a curse and why she came within just seconds of walking away from acting just a few years after that, how she first heard about Killers of the Flower Moon and tackled the challenges presented to her by it, and how it feels for her to be racking up history-making accolades for her work in it, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Lily, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you. And uh, to begin with on this podcast, just the basics always at first, uh, can you share where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? Yeah. Hi, I'm Lily Gladstone. Um, I was born technically in Kalispell, Montana. There uh, wasn't a doctor in Browning that day that could have helped my mom with a C-section if she needed it. So I came out in Kalispell, but I went home to and was uh, raised in Browning, Montana on the Blackfeet Reservation. Yes. And uh, your your folks, what, was, what kind of background uh, professionally did they have? My dad is a Boilermaker rigger. He had gone to school and studied broadcast journalism, but then uh, went into a blue-collar trade after after leaving school and stayed there. Um and then when I grew up, he would supplement it in Montana in the season that they'd be laid off because it's the shipyards, you know, uh, boilermakers. A lot of them, especially my dad's a crane op and a rigger, would work in the the shipyards. So he was also a mason. He was also a really good painter. He would do signs around the community. 
My mom's an early childhood development specialist, and she moved to the reservation from graduate school. She'd graduated from Colorado, and um, she moved up to Browning to start a job with Head Start, and that's pretty much what she did for most of my childhood. And then after that, she was she would teach at Blackfeet Community College. Um, she moved to Head Start in Mount Vernon, Washington, the year that we all moved out to Washington. And then um, she ended her career teaching at the college level at Shoreline Community College. Nice. So well, yeah, a boilermaker and a teacher. <laughs> very nice. And uh, the idea of acting, from what I've been able to gather reading a lot about you, is of all things, we, we can thank George Lucas, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a couple of different ways. I mean, <laughs> Return of the Jedi introduced us all to the Ewoks and that... Uh, yeah, I just think I wanted to be an Ewok, but um, sophisticated enough and simple enough at five years old to <laughs> put that into the idea that acting was the way to go. And then also, um, yeah, I think my first epic story that I fell in love with was Willow. Oh, yeah. So again, George, George Lucas. And it sounds like your father was particularly encouraging of the idea of acting because of extenuating circumstances. What was going on that made him think this would be a, a good outlet for you? I was just a really expressive kid. You know, um, he he and my mom, I'm an only child, and they just had a lot of fun, fun being parents when I was little. And he said several times that we raised each other. And um, he'd talk about how, you know, when I was when I was little, I was particularly like precocious and conversational with adults, I think, because I've socialized mostly with my parents. You're right. snowed in a lot of the year. A lot of my cousins that I grew up around that lived on the res, um, they're a couple years older than me. So it was, uh, yeah, just used to kind of jabbering at adults. And um, my dad said a lot of times people would ask, how'd you get so cute? You know, so he knew that I was just like performative and <laughs> held my own. Right. And then he gave me my first line. <laughs> oh, yeah? He gave me my first line in response, first line delivery. So my cue, if anybody asked, how did you get so cute? Uh, my answer was, well, I suppose it was good manners and good breeding. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what I was saying. That was, your, uh, that was your go-to. That was my first actor training. Now, the fact that you guys, you mentioned moving to Washington, I guess, Seattle area. When was that and why was that? Because it seems like acting at least kicked up a bit more once you were there in terms of doing it, you know, more seriously. But was that, yeah, what was what, what, what came first? The idea of go to, you know, you're going to Seattle for another reason or you're going to Seattle because you might have more performing opportunities. I mean, my parents kind of framed our big move in terms of, uh, in those terms for me, because it's a big thing to leave your home when you're 11. Yeah. You know, so they, um, they kind of talked about it as it's for our whole family, and those were the reasons that they helped me think through for myself. Was uh, you know having more exposure to you know having a dance studio close by because I was a ballerina back then, but I also really loved to act. I loved doing plays, and um, there were children's theaters that I could go to in in Seattle. But one of the big reasons that we moved back when we did is my grandmother was retiring, and she was caretaker of my uncle James, who. Um, is special needs and lives at home and needs a lot of assistance. So we integrated our households. Um, and that's when grandma became like my third parent. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of it, like I said, my mom had gotten a job with a different Head Start organization. Um, and my dad, you know, he would work half of the year seasonally in Seattle anyway. That's where he was born and raised. 
Okay. His dad had moved over from the res in the 40s, I think, and had picked up the trade of boiler making. So um, that just kind of became, you know, a lot of Blackfeet people in that era. It was a policy through the 1950s. Eisenhower's administration um, had the Indian Relocation Act, mm-hmm. which incentivized Native people to leave reservations and pick up trades in the city. So that... Um, that trade was kind of established in my family and it wasn't necessarily that act that brought us that way but there was a lot of native families that were moving to seattle including my grandma mm-hmm. ermy from lapway idaho um my, my nez purse yeah. grandma so that's how my grandparents met being um kind of first generation urban indians in seattle so my dad and my uncles were born and raised there but my dad spent a lot of his childhood on the Nez Perce Reservation. And then when he graduated college, um, or when he left college, he went back to Browning and back to the res for a while. And that's that's more or less when he met my mom. And so seems like you really uh, found a bit of an identity as, as a performer in Seattle because mm-hmm. as you've been constantly reminded lately that your your senior yearbook i guess by that point you were all <laughs> let me leave it to you to share if you wouldn't mind uh how did yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh my senior class 2004 um mount lake terrace high school later uh, voted me most likely to win an oscar <laughs> me and me and josh Ryder. yes and that was because <laughs> you'd really been active in theater in high school or what yeah i uh I did student government my first year. I was freshman class president and kind of decided that that wasn't really my my thing. <laughs> um, and so sophomore year, I auditioned for Our Town and got cast as Emily and won Best Actress of the Year that year. Nice. It's a little a little gold man on top of like a, a pedestal. Your first, <laughs> so, your first gold man. My, yeah. <laughs> uh, my only gold no, man. So right yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it was sweet. Um, me and Josh, I think, both won that year, actually. And then junior year, you know, did a couple of musicals. Um, you know, it's it's high school, and it's not really a pre-professional training track, necessarily. It's, you know, you, you cast to include everybody. So by the time, you know, midway through junior year, I was just wanting to be in plays. And I wasn't always drawn to the plays that you were allowed to do in high school. Um, so I started auditioning from an actor's call board, Actors Northwest had a, a, you know, kind of like a early internet days bulletin board for auditions that my mom Stuff would shop. Outside of school. Yep, extracurricularly. Wow. So I kind of became by junior year, my extracurricular life was very much at my mom's community college. They had a really fantastic theater program there um, and a kind of emerging film program. Uh, same with the University of Washington. I ended up doing some like senior thesis films in both places. I did um, student productions that students were writing short plays, the student short play film or um, short play festivals and short film festivals. So I kind of became by junior year way less social because, you know, a lot of actors know the life of, oh, sorry, I can't. I have rehearsal. So that was... I feel like my identity at that point, because I was doing independent films or doing student films or doing, you know, student plays extracurricularly with the college kids, I just was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, People like, Lily's an actor. Yeah. Now, when it came time to go off to college, I know that you 
end up going to University of Montana mm-hmm. and focused on it there. But was at that point, I guess it's somewhere around there. You're probably making the calculation that this is what I what I really want to do with my life, pursue with my life, um, if that's your focus in in university. And so I just wonder, you know, at that point, how aware were you of the history of opportunities in this business for uh, Indigenous Americans, Native Americans? And, you know, was that kind of, if if you were aware of that, was that a kind of discouraging thing or a motivator to kind of break out of that? I, I took camera acting coaching when I was in my sophomore year is when I started that. And a lot of that was seeking out films and in kind of a professional way, not just films that inspire you artistically, but like what kind of roles you're likely to be going out for. And I did have an awareness of it because I remember pretty explicitly a writing exercise that we had my senior year in our contemporary living class where we had to do our 10 year plan. And In my mind, I figured, well, in the next 10 years, maybe I'll have a couple of independent films that I've done. Maybe I'll like, you know, I don't I don't think I'm going to be like a movie star or anything. But and then I remember writing about the Independent Spirit Awards. Really? (laughs) Because at that point, Gary Farmer had been nominated. I think Eric Schweig maybe had been nominated not long after that. A few years later, Tamara Podemski was nominated for Four Sheets to the Wind. Um, I think Gary Farmer was like a several times nominee. And um, I believe Graham Greene had been nominated. So it was just where I was seeing these incredible Native performances in movies that I really wanted to do. Like Skins came out when I was a sophomore in 2002, and I loved that film. And um, Noah Watts's work in that movie, I was like, that's the kind of work I want to do. You know, I want to do, um, I want to do independent film to really get into these characters, get into this world. You know, the way that Noah played a modern Native guy who's got a complicated relationship, but a very loving one with his alcoholic father. I thought it was done with a lot of nuance. And um, yeah, so I had this weird roadmap in my head already that uh, I'm not going to you know, I'm not going to aim to be like super famous. I'm going to aim to do good, solid, independent films because, you know, the filmmakers that I'd worked with who were students were, you know, also lovers of indies. Mm -hmm. I had, um, you know, kind of frequented a number of little independent theaters around Seattle. Like we would read, um, (laughs) me and my mom would every Friday when uh, the arts and entertainment or Thursday, I think when the arts and entertainment issue of Seattle times would come out, we would find more Moira McDonald's reviews and kind of shop, which movies we were going to go see that weekend. And she really focused on indies back then. Um, so yeah, I developed this sense that (laughs) back then when I think about it, it was almost maybe naivete, but I knew that, or I had the sense that once I found like a filmmaking family or my track, then it would be pretty easy, I guess. And it certainly wasn't easy and it certainly wasn't effortless, but um, yeah, I don't know. I think when teenage girls, man, when we get obsessed about something, (laughs) it's... uh, there's a lot of power to actualize things. There's a lot of power to visualize things. And I also knew the kind of things that I wanted to make. I wasn't, you know, out of high school, I didn't want to aim to go to a college that would place me near New York or near L.A. Because I had considered USC. I had considered the Tisch School. I had considered Juilliard. Um, but really, at that point, too, I wanted to go home 
I wanted to be in Montana again. I was kind of tired of being one of three native girls in my high school. Um, I was just ready to be somewhere where, I don't know, I could kind of express different aspects of what I cared about than just acting, because I always kind of felt acting would be a part of me. So University of Montana had a conservatory approach, which Juilliard taught me was what you wanted to go for. Mm -hmm. And they also had the only standalone Native American studies program in the country at that point. So it was like, perfect. I'll I'll go home. And even after finishing there, graduating from there, um, you know, a lot of people who want to have an acting career will go to New York or L.A. You Mm -hmm. um, instead did, it seems like, spent the next like five or six years on the move, right? These are like... (laughs) different touring, first a a show and then I guess a program, right? That essentially Mm -hmm. you go to schools and and teach history through performance, right? That was... Yeah, touring theater became my bread and butter those years. And I based out of Montana partly because I just felt like I was home again and I'd kind of carved out a community for myself. I was in a relationship that I didn't want to leave. And I just had a real sense of, I guess a creative community there that I didn't feel the need to run and try and rebuild somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And because I right out of college jumped into a professional uh, theater tour that kept us on the road for a year with To Kill a Mockingbird and I built up equity points. So I kind of wanted to stay close to the theater that knew me Mm -hmm. (laughs) to not lose my precious equity points. So after that, I... Just from a Craigslist audition notice when I went home to visit my family in Seattle over a summer, auditioned for Living Voices, they were looking for a Native actress for a piece about Native American boarding schools. And like when I went in to meet with them about it, there was a mixed media portion and a lot of the acting that I'd done in undergrad was with the media arts program with mixed media theatrical stage shows. So I knew how to interact with like basically a screen. (laughs) Um, I had done a theater tour, so I knew what it was to, you know, get the car, get the itinerary. This was pre-GPS days or just the early, early GPS days. (laughs) Yep. So MapQuest printed out paper instructions, MapQuest, figuring out how to drive yourself to a location, doing your own setup, doing your own tech. Um, and then performing and then also having this minor Native American studies under my belt. I could talk about policy. I could talk about representation. I could talk about working in indigenous communities. Yeah, I could I could talk about, I guess, when you're going to audiences of kids that have an outside perspective, it's really valuable to have an educational training that prepares you for how to have conversations about these Um, these bridges that are being built. So I had kind of this little arsenal um, already that made that a really great job for me. And that one was, you know, here and there when schools would book it, when communities would book it. I feel like I grew a lot as a performer during those years because it was a one-woman show with other pre-recorded voices that talked about these points in American history. And then it gave me a chance afterwards because the show took up 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, You get a whole classroom to fill with Q&As, and a lot of times kids don't necessarily have questions. The middle schoolers are ready. (laughs) It's like they're dying. You know, they're, they're just breaming with questions. The fourth graders are asking questions, but not necessarily about the history. 
Um, there was a there was a prop trick that I had where I had a little clip on with my hair up and um, you know wrapped in wool because the character I was playing was Dene, was Navajo, and because she's going through boarding school, there's a part of the play where I take my bun out and let my hair, which was cut about um, chin length for mm. that show, and just because it was the style that I liked back then, but it illustrated that visual like suddenly your hair is gone. So of course the questions fourth graders would ask, "Did you really cut your hair?" <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, yeah, going into, into like corporate events and colleges and stuff like that too, usually conversation would be pretty stimulating, but you just learn how to, you learn how to cover a lot of native history yeah. in a classroom period. So, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of what I did in between the odd independent film here and yeah. there. Yeah. And I mean that, so it sounds like when you were in school, you'd been getting into films, you know, student films or whatever, but it seems like not large films, but indie professional films were kind of started around the time that the living voices stopped. Now is that it's, I I've heard this story about where you're essentially like reading for these directors who are casting. And then they're the ones that say, we want you to be in the movie actually instead is this the, <laughs> the Smith brothers. Yeah. Or yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That was winter in the blood. Yeah. So I had just been back from my first theater tour for a couple of months. And then they had their first open casting call. The summer prior, I had read maybe two summers prior. But with the University of Montana in the summers, Montana's also, UM's also very much known for its creative writing program. So there was this really nice overlap. There was a, and still is, the Missoula Colony is what it's called. Writers come together to workshop pieces, plays typically, but once in a while you get a screenplay. And um, this very beloved Blackfeet and Grove on author, James Welch, had written a book, Winter in the Blood, in the early 60s. And his his widow, Lois, is a good friend, and she still lives in Missoula. And the, he kind of, like, was a father figure, at least, mm. to the Smith brothers. His own father, I guess, was kind of touch and go in their lives. So they really loved James Welch. And they made an adaptation of his book, and it was probably my first full circle moment that really affirmed one of my choices to go back to UM. I knew James Welch had gone to school there. I knew that he'd lived in Missoula. And my mom, after I'd spent a summer back on the res back in Browning um, when I was 16, I got my my grown-up name. Um, I was really lonely when I went back to Seattle, like more so than I think the first time that we left when I was 11, almost 12. And um, 
my mom gave me that book. <laughs> so I remember reading it and it's like, it just felt so much like it needed to be a film to me because mm-hmm. um, it's so first person. It's called The Catcher in the Rye of the Montana Highline. <laughs> it's wow. a beautiful narrative um, that expanded from poetry. So I was so excited when I heard that there were profess- there was a professor at UM who was adapting it into a movie and did their first reading at The Colony. So I volunteered as a, as a reader in that. And then a couple of years later, they invited me back to do the open call as a reader. And a lot of it was so they could introduce me to Renee Haynes because they knew that Renee Haynes is like, you know, she's like the catalyst for a lot of careers of Native actors. She's, um, her first movie was in Browning, Montana when I was two years old. She was, <laughs> she co-cast a War Party, Frank wow. Rodham's film. But yeah, I got to meet Renee after our first session. She just said, I think you're great. Let's get your career going. And then by the end of three open casting calls, the Smith brothers did look at each other and like, well, why don't we just cast her? (laughs) And that was like the first or second movie, right? There was Yeah, that was my first introducing credit. Yeah. Um, Amazing. And then Renee was involved with Killers too, right? Was she... uh, She was, yeah. yeah. She and Ellen. Um, Renee was brought on to help flush out the native cast and Mm -hmm. you know i think in that instance just from what i've heard from ellen like it kind of came through both of them Mm -hmm. ellen knew my work from certain women but you can also point to renee for certain women as um had she been involved with that only only briefly you know she got a call she got a description for the character and then she gave my name so, um, she said that she was at Costco and she didn't recognize the number. She was checking out, but she's like, oh, it's it's 917. I should probably pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was the call that turned into my request to audition for certain women. And the call was, was from Kelly Riker? Or who was Not from Kelly. It was from uh, Mark Bennett. But essentially with, uh, with certain women, which is exactly where I wanted to go next. I mean, this is, film comes out in 2016. Mm-hmm. You are playing this lonely young ranch hand who uh for people who haven't seen it she goes to a night class taught by kristen stewart's uh what do we say disillusioned lawyer yeah i'd say that's fair and then you guys (laughs) have uh have a relationship that evolves from there but this was a a small movie but obviously a very big uh impact for for you people really responded to the stillness of the performance which is something that always comes up when people are you know talking about yeah. even in killers um yeah kelly calls it the montana still because apparently <laughs> michelle's got it too oh, right, right. <laughs> and then there's uh, you know this the great parking lot scene just a lot of people really took notice la film critics uh, association best supporting actress award uh spirit and gotham award nominations all of that so i guess i wonder what that response to your work was like in the moment and also if it kind of had the uh, effect afterwards that you might have thought in the moment it would have. I did have an instinct because when you read that script, you just feel there's so much more being said in the script than is on the, you know, the page necessarily. Um, Yeah. When I was reading it, like I knew that I was auditioning for at the time the character was named Jamie on the page. So I was like looking for Jamie, looking for Jamie. And, you know, back then before I was getting a slew of auditions and reading a lot of scripts, I was still very much in my theater training where it's like I start on page one and I read the whole narrative and don't just flip to find my character. (laughs) I do that now, but back then I didn't. (laughs) So I'm, um, 
more than two thirds of the way in. And I'm just wondering, then I'm starting to think it's like, okay, Jamie's probably like a very small character, maybe a gas station attendant or whatever. And then I get to it. I'm like, oh, like the first line describing her, I just felt it. And I don't know. I don't, there was so much in the zeitgeist at the time. I feel like this was like Kelly, you know, she's, she's got a finger on something. And it just felt like it was speaking to me directly in a lot of ways. Right before I got the script, I was out shoveling snow at the Smith Brothers' mother's ranch. She was out of town for the winter um, and needed somebody to look out after, you know, her her cabin, on, her beautiful big cabin, but um, her place out in the woods. So I was chopping firewood and alone and kind of questioning what my purpose was anymore because <laughs> I was just starting to try to get a little more real with myself. I had just become Actors' Equity from another Montana Repertory Theater tour. Um, but yeah, I was just kind of burnt out on a lot of things at that point. So I was in Onyx Smith's library where I knew generations of writers and creatives had been invited for, you know, just to stay for a few weeks in the summer to have a retreat in Montana wilderness to write. And I could feel like the creativity of all of these generations of people like seeped into the walls. And I was just like in this space that somehow felt a little bit imbued with like this creative sacredness or whatever. <laughs> and I just kind of surrendered in the moment right there. And I was just like, tell me what to do. You know, the last audition I had gotten was for World War Z, which really? was like shooting in Spokane. And I was like, I don't want to move to L.A. I don't want to move to New York. I just moved back to Montana, um, like after having been gone for just a theater mm -hmm. tour, you know. So then I drove into town a few days later to the Roxy Theater where I was starting a new job, managing a grant to show winter in the blood and reservation communities around the state. And I had an email um, from, yeah with a breakdown for a film by Kelly Reichert, which was, <laughs> it's kind of funny because I don't think my manager at the time knew who she was because she wasn't super excited about this audition. <laughs> but the year or two prior, my first leading role in a short film by Caitlin Hoffmeister was called Sea Glass. She was graduating from the University of Montana. And um, I asked her for a tone check on the film and she gave me Wendy and Lucy. Oh, wow. And then suddenly I had a filmmaker who was making the kind of movies that I was looking for. Yeah. <laughs> um, just kind of perfect yeah yeah so the, the fact though that you do the work it's something you're excited about it's like sounds like a bit of a oasis or whatever after after is that the right word i don't know but just after uh some time of searching or whatever gets all this great feedback but it does seem like I, i've gathered from other stuff you've said that you know, it's a little disheartening when you do a great job in a project that people are seeing and then it didn't necessarily lead to that much. You know, I think in that case, maybe doing too great of a job because <laughs> <laughs> I um, maybe it's because I had been in Montana when I got cast and I had been out on a ranch when I read the material that I went to the YWCA um, thrift shop and found the right Carhartt and the right flannel and the right boots. And, you know, I created the character for the audition. And I think that was kind of the only person that Kelly ever met before we started, because it took a while before she kind of realized that I 
was not <laughs> Jamie. <laughs> and I kind of feel like, you know, I, I, as an actor, I joke about, you know, being method, but I think I'm a little more method than I realize. I, um, I get into character fairly early. I get into their psyche, their, um, you know, how introverted or extroverted, how whatever, pretty early. Um, so there was an element of, I guess, just accepting this character and living in their skin a little bit. Um, and I think like, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to watch this film where there's a breakout actor that you have never seen before. And you just kind of assume like, well, they probably just were local that worked on film. And it's like, good job on the director. But then the performance gets a little bit lost. Where I really appreciated that round of critics circle wins is because I know that film critics are watching film after film after film the way that I spent my teenage yeah. years doing. It's like, you know how to spot little cues or little markers of like, there's a trained actor, there's this, there's this. And whether or not it's the acting showing or it's like maybe the process, people saw that performance, you know. Um, L.A. film critics saw that performance. Um, IndieWire saw that performance. But I'm not necessarily sure that the industry did. Well, at least not immediately, right? Because not immediately. It, as it turns out, that was what Ellen Lewis, I guess, showed Scorsese, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. it just took a little while. but <laughs> It did. I had an instinct that I had a moment of like kind of terror with certain women. I remember thinking like, this is perfect. This is exactly the kind of thing I want to do, but it's not going to like launch me into this spotlight that I'm not ready for and don't want, but um, maybe we'll lead to some other stuff. And then I remember sitting outside on the ATV talking to Keith Marlin, our second AD, just, I had this weird sense of dread and I didn't know how to like articulate it to anybody. So I just said to Keith, it's like, I just have a weird feeling that there's something really big that's going to happen <laughs> because of this. And he's like, oh yeah, I'm sure this will open more opportunities for you. But like, it was strange how scary that idea was. And um, even though I know Killers didn't come around for the next five years after that, or what would that have been? Yeah, about that. Because mm -hmm. um, that was 2015. And I started that process of auditioning close to 2020. But um, I had no idea that it was in the zeitgeist so much because I think that was not long before the book itself came out and the rights were snapped up pretty quickly. The book of Killers, mm -hmm. yeah. And Marty, I just learned this during our Q&As, that he, um, he'd, he'd had it, he'd had a plan to do it with Leo so long that it wasn't really coming together the way they wanted, so he took a break from Killers to go shoot The Irishman. Right, right. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And I remember even the Irishman was only done because he was going to do it like Frankie the Machine or something with De Niro. And then they didn't want to do that. So, I mean, it's so many moving, what do they say, sliding doors or whatever had to align for this to actually work out when it did. But mm -hmm. the craziest thing though is how close did it get to you actually leaving acting? Because it does sound like mm -hmm. it was insanely uh, close in a sense, right? I mean, I don't know. The thing is, what I have to, I guess, remind people, including myself for the timeline here, is that you hear about killers before the pandemic, mm -hmm. but it didn't really get going till after. But but the fact that before the pandemic, after the certain women period and a little while after, 
you were looking for other looking at other options? Yeah. You know, I I say quit with a lowercase Q instead of a capital. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, it was COVID. We weren't sure what was going to happen with our industry. I had had some pretty promising auditions and callbacks leading right up till COVID that didn't go my way. And then like knowing those projects also had shut down and just this general anxiety about when things pick back up, is there going to be a place for me right away? And at that point, I think, you know, the pandemic just shifted a lot of priorities for a lot of people. I was at home helping caretake my grandma and terrified of doing anything that might bring COVID back into the home. So by the time, um, you know, just slew after slew of things were happening, I, you know, Seattle was a pretty active place in the wake of George Floyd. Um, the, the CHOP, the Capitol Hill Occupied protest was in effect. I have a number of friends that I've made films with over the years and, um, like Tracy Rector was her, she was part of Winter in the Blood. She brought a lot of Native filmmakers onto set and kind of this mentorship program. And, um, you know, a lot of people who work around her were organizing and, um, you know, were being just really inspiring activists at that time. And I just remember feeling like I wanted to be a part of it, but I was so scared to go into big crowds and, um, you know, risk bringing anything home. So when murder hornets landed in Washington state, when the giant Asian hornet showed up, I'd seen YouTube videos the year before of just that species completely decimating an entire colony of, of bees. Um, just like, so just like lined out and just waiting for these bees on the attack to be like coming out and just, you know, just this cascade of these little bees just being beheaded and thrown into a big pile. It was horrifying. And like, I love bees. <laughs> I really love bees. <laughs> um, there's a little indigenous species of bumblebee that got me through a particularly like another little period of time wondering what this career was. Um, it was actually right before shooting, shooting first cow and then right before I got cast in Billions. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I had a little indigenous honey or bumblebee show up and became my pet for a couple <laughs> weeks. And I gained like this maternal instinct <laughs> about bees. So I was registering in late or in the fall of 2020, I was registering for a data analytics course so I could get paid to apply for a job with the Department of Agriculture in Washington State to track murder hornets, oh. um, to get paid for that position, you had to have a data analytics, yeah. at least a, a course in it. Yeah. So I was like, all right, I was looking up doing that. And I was on my mom's, the same community college where I used to do theater. <laughs> I was on their website, shopping their math program for any like remote data analytics 101s that I could take. Had my debit card sitting out so I could just register for a course. And then like the little Gmail, bing, the I said, uh, Zoom with Scorsese, question mark. I'm like, oh, my God. Again. <laughs> again, the film gods just keep pushing me back into it. When I've got a foot out, they just like, nope. That is unbelievable. So It, it is. It it's been. very unbelievable, yet it is. <laughs> right? I mean, we came very close. It could have been Killers of the Bees instead of Killers of the Flowers. You know, there's there's an analogy there. There's, yeah. there's a line to be drawn. Right. I, like, had this instinct to go after these invasive, murderous right. hornets that were wiping out this, right. yeah. Oh, man. Well, so that Skype, now, you had heard nothing 
prior prior to that, you know, uh, Skype with Scorsese, pre-pandemic, had there been there'd been some uh, inkling that that you there was going to be Killers of the Flower Moon movie, and you might be part of it, or this was the first. No, I'd I'd, I'd been called into Ellen Lewis's office almost exactly a year before that, October 2019. Um, I was bouncing between three different independent film sets and billions. So it was the first year of my whole acting career that I made what you would call a respectable adult's income. And I was like, okay, I actually like, I'm not below the poverty line this year. This is the first time in my career that I haven't been just, just hanging right below the poverty line. So it was like, oh, I can maybe have a viable career. I'm working myself to the bone, but this is great. And then the pandemic happens. But yeah, in the midst of like flying back and forth between all of these different independent film sets, I went into Ellen Lewis's office and had my first meeting with her, read the first sides um, for the for the audition, got a glimpse at what the, like, only through those sides. I didn't see the whole script, so I had like no way of knowing but based upon the sides that I had, I got an idea of how Molly was playing in in the the narrative. And they just as an actor approaching those sides was a little bit maybe deflated because it was a long expositional monologue followed by another long expositional monologue. And that's, you know, any actors listening know when you see that, it's like, oh, how do I make this actionable? How do I make this interesting? How do, you know, and I'd read the book and I had gotten an immediate sense of like, I could, you know, it's terrifying the thought of doing it, but I think I could play Molly. Um, and then when I saw the sides, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can play Molly. Well, but your instinct was obviously correct that it was representative of the script of that time, right? Or you yeah. would later learn. Yeah, I found out just doing this press tour since, you know, the strike's been lifted in November. I think probably even just within the last month or so doing a Q&A with Marty, he confirmed that at the time that was one of maybe three scenes that Ernest and Molly both had together. The rest of the script was so focused on the investigation, on the formation of the FBI. I suspect, I don't know, that maybe J. Edgar Hoover was a bigger part of the original draft. Um, Yeah, and what I'd heard, I think it's one of those things where... You know, some projects really want to make themselves and really insist on how they want to be made. So I feel like every creative that was involved, you can't point to one person being like, this must change. Right. <laughs> you know, I think it was I think it was accumulation of what a lot of, you know, the core creative team before anybody else became attached. I think they were restless about what I maybe felt restless about reading this scene. It's like, this isn't Molly. And it felt to me like a tertiary character, which of course it would have been. I was like, we already have that history of, you know, focusing on the FBI story. The FBI funded a film (laughs) about it in the fifties starring Jimmy Stewart. It's like, we have that already. So it was, it was the first little, moment in the long process of making this film, you know, in pre-production and production and post even of every time it just felt like it was going to tip the wrong way than either Marty or Leo or, you know, one of the producers or any number of people that were attached to it would kind of step up. And um, I think 
I had heard that Leo over COVID in the wake of George Floyd, um, kind of the shifting uh, culture suddenly where people are asking themselves harder questions that it were a little bit easier to sideline or be like, you know, so it was so front and center the conversation about is it the time to white knight the FBI right now? (laughs) (laughs) And also white savior focus of Yeah, I mean, literally, the man's name is Tom White. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Skype with Scorsese leads to a Skype with Scorsese. I love where he, one of his interviews, he said, I was on the, I was on, I did a, what was it, like the Zoom I was on the Zoom with... Uh, on the Zoom, yep, <laughs> yeah. yep, yep. But good for him, you know, 80-something years old, doing it at all. Good for him. I, I run into this with my parents. Uh, but you have your Skype or Zoom, and uh, how quickly did it become clear that you were going to be doing this? You know, it was never very quickly clear to me. Um, <laughs> you know, my friends and collaborators, like both Marissa Maltz, who she and I did The Unknown Country together, and Jeff Marslit, he and I did Quantum Cowboys together. They both kept telling me, it's like, no, you're going to get it. This is your role. And I was like, guys, I really, there's a lot of really talented actresses out there. There's, you know, I don't know that. Um, and I think even through the process of getting these final callbacks and final meetings, I wasn't 100% sure um, I had my first Zoom with Marty where I read through the new scene. That was that was the amazing gift when not just getting that, you know, Zoom with Marty email, but then the sides that were attached to it were beautiful. It was a scene that, I don't know, it felt like one that I would have, if I were working with a writer myself to create a piece for myself, it would have been like that. You know, it was, it was remarkable. Um, I could take the beats that I felt Molly needed. It was indicative that this is one of many scenes that help in just the shift, you know, it's examining the relationship rather than the plot and the lines, you know, the dropping the name of who his brother is, you know, that small bit of exposition, but it's totally actionable in that scene. You know, suddenly I was like, I can do this. And that means that Molly is a bigger character. And just to quickly, briefly, just interrupt for a second. I mean, it comes back to from theater, from certain women, like there was always, as we established earlier, that people are remarking on what you can do with silence or stillness or whatever but that's a luxury in film that not is that isn't often there you know you either Mm -hmm. don't have enough somebody doesn't have enough screen time or they're just the pace they think people they don't trust the audience but this movie yes three three plus hours but part of that is because there are a lot of moments to process things right for sure yeah i mean Good radio, I think, builds in those little musical interludes so you can process the segment you just heard without rolling into the next one. You know, there's a handful of minds out there that need to stay lightly ahead of things and like, okay, what's next, what's next, what's mm-hmm. next? It's like you can't play every project to that, that you know, that mm-hmm. sensibility. It's like there's a place for it, certainly, but with a history that's been neglected for over 100 years now, it's like why not give it three and a half hours? <laughs> Um, and so that first meeting with Marty was just reading sides with Ellen Lewis so he could see me. And I remember in that meeting, he was like, this Zoom auditioning is great because it's like, <laughs> makes sense. It's kind of a built-in camera test. And he right. can just do it from his home theater. It's right. perfect. So then 
a couple of days after that first read with Marty, which was on my dad's birthday, that felt really sweet. <laughs> um, yeah, Who my had put Scorsese on your radar. Did. Right? He absolutely did. My dad first told me about who Scorsese was in context of Robbie Robertson because it was one of my favorite albums when I was a kid. The Red Road Ensemble when Robbie was embracing like his heritage into his music. And then my dad was talking to me about how he was in this band called The Band. (laughs) (laughs) And um, this place, I think, in upstate New York, he was talking about, which I guess is the basement where the basement tapes were made. I didn't put that together when I was a kid. But I have an image of my dad telling me about Marty and Robbie watching movies together in the basement and how, like, you know, Marty, like, he hung out with the Indians, you know, and, like... I guess I didn't I didn't know this either until we were on our press tour. Marty went to um went to Pine Ridge in the early 70s. Yeah, 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah. and I had no idea about yeah. that, but I guess that spawned from his friendship with with Robbie and I think maybe my dad knew that, but I just had a picture of like Marty and Robbie being really good friends and you know, I didn't feel at like 10, 9, 10 years old that I wanted to watch Goodfellas <laughs> or Casino. I think Casino was the one that came, right. had come out most recently. But a few years later, or a couple years later, Kundun came out. And my dad had talked to me about colonization and he was referencing Free Tibet a lot. So we went and watched that movie together. And um, so that's, to me, who Marty is as a filmmaker. That was my first introduction. And like, I had to remind my dad of this. I remember it very clearly when he told it to me. Um, and he's someone I told him recently. He's like, yeah, that sounds like something I'd say. He said, you know, one day Martin Scorsese is going to make his Indian movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> because Kundun was so at the heart of that story. It yeah. brought us into a world that we can't access anymore. You know, um, and that's what he showed to uh, Osage Nation, right? That's I what think it feels like. Yeah. Silence, I think he said those yeah. two. Absolutely. I feel like those two, those three probably are in a trilogy or in some kind of, you know, not a trilogy, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, sorry, you were saying you were, about, it was your dad's birthday yeah, when you're talking birthday. about Marty. So that was nice. That was really nice. I could kind of like, you know, I was in there auditioning with Marty and sensing that my parents were trying to be very quiet in the living room. <laughs> Um, Mom, be quiet. <laughs> yep. And then a few days later, I got invited to do another Zoom meeting with Marty and Leo. And that was that was a good indicator to me that Marty liked my audition. But then I was like, now this is the audition for Leo. You know, that's what it felt like. Right. It's still the audition for Marty, but it felt like I needed to pass Leo's approval. Right. So through this meeting, I had my sides next to me the whole time anticipating, like, maybe this is the chem read. Maybe they'll try and roll it all together. But it just was conversation about the script shifts, about, you know, me, my family, my the way that I access the material, Um turned into a conversation about, you know, this shifting focus from the FBI being like a crime thriller thing to being more of a um, a relationship-based uh, dark romance. And my thoughts about that, and I immediately compared it to Graham Greene's The Quiet American, yes. um, the, the analogy that you have in this love triangle that really explained to my young brain who loved Brendan Fraser. He was, <laughs> he was kind of a local celebrity to Seattle, young Seattle actors. Cause he'd gone to Cornish college of the arts. Um, but anyways, and another full circle back to Kelly. Oh my God. Yeah. Too many, yeah. just too many full circles, but that, you know, it's okay. Just accept it. That's, yeah. the, way that, that's the way the world works. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> things, things move cyclically. Right. Um, 
But yeah, the, when I was talking about The Quiet American, no idea that Brendan Fraser would get cast two and a half years later. That surprise, We found that out while we were filming, and that was a huge surprise to right. me. But um, yeah, I compared it to that analogy, and I think that's when I saw Marty really animate. It's like, and I came to learn later when something really like clicks for him or there's like a door open or like, yes, that's it. That's the creative pulse that we're, t that we're, that we're on to like mm -hmm. his body just electrifies and he starts kind of just like moving. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love Marty. You pick up so much energy being around him because yeah. he's so energetic. So, um, yeah, Leo had mentioned at the end of the, at the end of the meeting that he was filming another project and that he would be available to do a chem read in a couple of weeks. So I had, you know, I've been in enough audition rooms that it felt like the equivalent of like, all right, well, we'll call you. We'll let you know. Right. And I'm like, okay, that didn't go my way. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I had that feeling, um, so I was kind of waiting to like hear the yes or the no, you know, when are we going to schedule this chem read? So then I was not letting it go yet, but that was somewhere in between Leo and Marty's birthday. I forget. It was somewhere between the 11th and the 17th of November. And then December 1st. So a few, a couple weeks later, I get a call from my reps expecting, okay, um, they have an answer if it's like going to be a chem read or if it's a pass. But it was a call with the offer. Which is amazing. So you were never even in the same physical space as Leo. Nope. Or Marty. Or Marty. Uh, and it's just... Never did a chem read. Never did any sort of reading with wow. Leo. It was just a meeting. Marty just, as Leo has said, he just knew. How did you uh, react to that? I I screamed. <laughs> I threw my phone across the room um, into my dad's recliner. <laughs> um my parents, of course, kind of figured what that was about. Right. And so there was a great elation. But, you know, the celebration was sobered up pretty quickly because it occurred to me very quickly since I'd been living in the research for this audition. It's December 1st. Right. Today's Molly Burkhart's birthday. Right. Oh, my gosh. So it was a real quick reminder of, you know, <laughs> a reminder and an affirmation because there was always this, even though it's exciting, there's also this sense of dread that you carry because you know this is going to be a life-changing thing. And you got a lot of work to do at that point. Yep, exactly. And I can I just, you know, in the interest of time, I'm just going to summarize sure. a few things and you tell me if I get anything wrong, but <laughs> she died in 1937. There's not that much of her to be, you know, found, but mm -hmm. you found what there was, photos, relatives, there's uh, seven weeks, I think, of studying Osage language, which mm -hmm. there is six weeks at the start of the six-month shoot of kind of spending time in Osage Nation with mm -hmm. members of the community there. And then in the middle of the whole thing, I don't know chronologically how or when this happened, but obviously your character is being made sick. You have to physically change a lot in this part mm -hmm. how did that was it done in se sequence or what did, what did you have to oh, do i had initially had about a four-week hold to do a pretty significant body change for the wasting illness and because of how production moves that got whittled down to two weeks oh my God. <laughs> so um i kind of slowly was working on it through the process so that it wouldn't show up in film but i also was making it easier on myself later mm. but yeah it was essentially like a two-week fast that i was on um from beginning of production to when cameras were up for when molly's really sick i'd 
lost about 28, 29 pounds, oh. um, which all went back on immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, that's kind of how people describe it happening for Molly, too. Like she, um, not necessarily the, the change in her body, but the change in her disposition. She recovered immediately when she was you know, taken out of essentially what feels like custody when she was taken out of this um, this care of Ernest and placed in the hospital. She got better immediately, mm. just immediately. Can I just ask about that? Because it, it mm-hmm. begs like, for me, the question I imagine you probably needed an answer to or at least to answer for yourself was at what point does she realize who's that that what's being done to her. Yeah. And I'm sure, um, I mean, is that something you just independently figure out or is that something you talk to others about? You know, you have to figure out how to play it because there's clues in the history. There's clues in the court documents. Um, Molly, there was one cross examination that was on record that I read of hers it's she's not on trial she's with a lawyer and um they're basically kind of spelling it out for her and the way that she's answering she's giving yes and no answers playing it all very close to the chest you can't surmise a lot but i could feel it i could feel that she was juggling so much in that and i could sense that she had her own agenda she had her own objective in all of it what she shared with um with these lawyers and who I presume were also FBI that would have been in the room, was that she didn't want any harm to come to Ernest, but she wanted the truth. And for me, the first little inklings of suspicion I had to place somewhere other than the murders when it came to Ernest. So, like, you know, he's out all the time. She's not sure if he loves her anymore. Maybe he's out gambling and maybe he's out whoring around or, you know... You know, maybe he's just doing any number of things. And uh, she was particularly vulnerable then, so... And then he soothes that. Um, The next time that it felt like there was major suspicion arising, it wasn't also directed at Ernest. Ernest still felt like a safe space for her. It was the Shown brothers. Um, From day one, well, maybe not day one, but from the the jump, Molly expresses some kind of skepticism about the character of Hale. Um, Are you scared of your uncle? So what we crafted was that whenever there was suspicion that would arise that something was afoot, it wouldn't land on Ernest. Ernest would be somebody who would maybe be in the crossfire and she'd be more worried about. And that would be evidenced and hid by how much he loved his kids, how much time he spent with the kids. Um, how uh, he learned Osage to speak with her, you know, and not everybody who married an Osage person back then would learn the language, but Ernest did in real life, not just in our narrative. So that was a clue to me. Um, One of the bigger clues that the house was unaware (laughs) was that after the trials in real life, Cowboy, the little boy, when he was grown, um, he gave his dad the nickname Old Dynamite and still had a relationship with him. Like, he would excuse himself from, like, community or family or friend groups and, well, sorry, gotta go, gotta go pick up Old Dynamite now. 
and then go pick him up from his trailer and drive him around, take him to the grocery store, whatever, you know, but maintained a relationship. So it tells you that those kids had a sense of family when they were young. There was love in this house, which just drives the betrayal up. But the suspicion, unfortunately, on Molly's part, I feel, was expressed very subconsciously once her subconscious had been hijacked by what the family told us was most likely a combination of arsenic and morphine Mm -hmm. that was being slipped into her insulin. She got hooked on, yeah. Yeah, so that gave me a lot to play with as an actor. On one hand, the insulin is doing its job. And also, Molly was one of the first five people in the world to get insulin. It was fully plausible that it could have been making her that sick. Nobody knew what insulin did to anybody. Um, This is a very traumatic period of time for Osage people, not just because of the reign of terror, of course, because of the reign of terror. But prior to that, Molly was the first generation born in Oklahoma. Her mother and her mother's generation had walked They'd been removed from their ancestral lands and placed in Oklahoma. They bought their land that they were on so they wouldn't be moved again. There's a lot of communal trauma there, so people getting sick felt like a normal response to that. Um, There were a lot of blind spots that people exploited and hid in. And really, I kind of leave judgment of exactly when it clicks for Molly, how much it clicks for Molly, up to the audience because there were filmic references that me, Marty, and Leo were trying to land, mostly um, the heiress and the it's final. It's so weird because <laughs> I've said to people, I, uh, you might think this is absolutely insane, but I, I think you kind of look like Olivia to have You are not the first. No? <laughs> I've okay. been hearing that for a long time. Yeah. My first theater tour with uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Kathleen, um, Kathleen Connery, she was playing Miss Maudie, and yeah. she would always tell me she gave me a set of pearls and would always tell me i looked like that that woman from gone with the wind and i was just like i could not see it because i thought she meant scarlett (laughs) o'hara it's the smile it's It's a lot it's the chin um profile there's there's a lot there i could see it and it only clicked for me when i watched the heiress like oh that's who she meant so yeah you're not the only one okay good i feel um i'm sure marty caught it too I bet. And I mean, I also, you think about, um, or at least I thought about, I don't know if this is crazy also, but like some of the Hitchcock, Suspicion, Notorious. Oh, fully. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, Leo kind of joked one day, Marty got caught on a, on a creative, like, um, obsession with one of my shots. It's when the Shawn brothers are coming up the stairs and Molly is feeling like, you know, she's like making herself smaller and hugging her knees to her chest and just terrified of the Shawn brothers. Marty shot that, you know, footage of Molly's reaction from every single angle because suddenly all of his film references just shot off in his head. (laughs) So he had to reference everything that could, and he said Hitchcock. Like I think there was a lot of Hitchcock in that particular scene. But yeah, the um the outro, while the heiress was a big um reference for us as far as the tone we wanted to land on with the film and where we wanted to end these these two characters, um, you know, leave their relationship. For me, performance wise, one of the most masterfully crafted um studies in ambiguity, I guess, is Philip Seymour Hoffman in Doubt. Oh, oh my god. Yeah. Perfect. Like I watched, Especially I've watched that end scene, right? Exactly. Yeah. You can watch it any way. Yeah. You can watch it thinking he's guilty, thinking he's innocent, thinking it's some kind of mix of the two, and it plays. So I wanted to craft that last scene in that, um, I guess, in that image. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Well, it's just the last question. 
kind of note. This is now nine months. I was at that screening in Cannes where, <laughs> you know, people went nuts and the camera goes in on you. And this is like probably where, you know, you realize this is before and after this moment, basically. Um, all the stuff that's happened since then, this movie going out to the world, all the recognition, all the people you meet in the interviews and the photos and all. I mean, it's pretty much been an insane, I would imagine, nine months. How do you feel? Has it been enjoyable? Has it been a sense of pressure? I mean, you've, you're making history at a number of different times, a number of different ways. And for people who have done that in the past, whether it's Jackie Robinson or whoever, they say, like, it's a, it's not always that as fun as you might imagine, because there's, there's a lot of people looking at you who are um, thinking about what you're doing. So anyway, as we head into the home stretch here, where <laughs> only a few days before March 10th, and then it's uh, onto the future. I mean, right. just what's, what's this been like for you? Post movie, just Lily. <laughs> um, you know, a good friend of mine, we were just rolling around when I had a couple of days off back home. And so we went to the, you know, rocky little cold Seattle beach together. But um, yeah, I was, I had my phone mounted and on the, on the dashboard to navigate and I got a little ding from Emma Stone. <laughs> just <laughs> The other stone in the actress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just checking in on me, seeing how I was doing because I know she's exhausted yeah, too. Yeah. Um, we developed a really nice friendship through all of this. And it's like that kind of stuff is just normal now because it really is a job. It's a slog. And, you know, fortunately, I love talking about this film, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, my friend Melissa, who was riding with me, she she noticed that and didn't say anything. And then I kind of noticed that she noticed it but didn't say anything. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're kind of friends now. <laughs> and then she just kind of like shook her head. She's like, I don't understand your life anymore. <laughs> like I don't either Melissa right. um you just one thing I am grateful for you know you mentioned Jackie Robinson um the accolades specifically about me about this film about these these wins and these nominations I have they're they're firsts you know they're historic but I'm not I'm at a moment where I'm not the only one out there working and doing things and leading projects and you know breaking down these doors and barriers like I've got my incredible Res Dogs family and all of the insanely talented actors on that show. Um, True Detective just wrapped up recently, and it's like Callie Reese is the first Indigenous woman to lead an HBO series and is killing it. And, you know, I just am so excited about the Afro-Indigenous representation there in a story that touches on a lot of the themes that I'm carrying and, and in this character that all the sisters are carrying and, and telling the story of the Kyle sisters. Like, we're all out there together right now. You know, Alakwa Cox broke all kinds of, like, records and, like, made all kinds of firsts leading leading Echo. It's, um, it does feel really big. It feels like a lot. And it is a lot to fall on one person. Because I think the, maybe in the past where it's been a little too much is because then suddenly all of the expectation for like all of the representation is hung on to one person and no one person can represent a whole, you know, Indian country is incredibly diverse. Uh, people make us a monolith. I think modern culture and, you know, cinema history has made us a monolith. People oftentimes, if they don't know better, think that we speak one language, you know, that there's a Native American language. There's hundreds and like thousands of different dialects within that. 
Um, there's more tribal nations in Washington State than there are countries in Europe. You know, just Washington State. <laughs> it's um, it's a really crazy time. It does feel circumstantial because I know it's nothing to do with lack of talent. It's just like lack of recognition, really. Um, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Like I said, I always had an eye on the Independent Spirit Awards because of their acknowledgement of indigenous performances that were just groundbreaking, like incredible. So, yeah, I think I've been able to stay afloat because I'm one ship of many and we're all rising together right now. <laughs> well, it's been a lot of fun to watch and thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.